safeguarding the player, safeguarding the game. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast. This mini-series of podcasts is part of the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast. And as you all know by now, in this series, we look at how safeguarding is developing not only here at home, but around the world. We look at safeguarding adults as well as children, and we explore safeguarding in different settings. I'm your host, Ian Brownhill, and today I'm joined in the studio by solicitor, Molly Sangera. Molly is a principal associate at Mills and Reeve. She's a specialist in the health sector and has been working in this area for 15 years. She specialises in mental health law and patient-related matters. Her work includes helping and advising clients to their duties under statute and how they can comply with these. She also advises on issues relating to deprivations of liberty and wider Mental Capacity Act work. She's worked on both sides of the aisle, representing patients and representing health bodies. But today, we're not just talking about Molly's healthcare law work. We're also talking about how we both love rugby and how safeguarding is impacting the sport. And Molly, alongside being a very busy solicitor, is the head of women and girls rugby at Litchfield RFC. But not only do I want to talk about rugby and safeguarding today, I'm also hoping that I can tease out of Molly how we should be thinking about sport impacting our work in the health and social care sector. So, Molly, I was trying to think back this morning as to when you started playing rugby. Is it about five or six years ago? Yeah, just started out five years ago. Um, Always been a fan, but had never picked up the ball. Didn't know women's rugby was a thing. Then saw advertisements from England Rugby about inner warrior camps. I thought I'm going to jump out of my comfort zone, give it a go. When and I've never looked back. It was the best thing I ever did. <laughs> I can remember being with you at Leicester County Court and you and I sitting there and you telling me, I think I'm going to play rugby. And I was like, really? And you were like, yep. Uh, and off you did it. And you've done, you've done pretty well, haven't you? Not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still playing. So that's the main thing. But yeah, no, I play championship rugby at the moment. I am, as you've said, the head of the women and girls section at Litchfield RFC as well. So you know me, I like to get stuck in and I like to get involved. A very interesting hobby alongside your work. Now, in terms of the nature of your work, will you share with our listener what you sort of do on a day-to-day basis? Yes. So day-to-day, I now act for the NHS. Previously, I would represent individuals. I started out doing mental health tribunals, quarter protection. So I still do a lot of quarter protection work primarily, whether that's section 21As, 16s, serious medical treatment cases. I provide a lot of advice to clients in terms of policies and wider management. I think a lot of people will agree we're still dealing with a lot of the after effects of lockdown and and COVID and how that's impacted people in the community, Mm. Um, whether that's long COVID, physical health deteriorations, issues around restrictions that were in place at that time. So we spend a lot of time supporting the NHS and commissioners in particular with the wider health and care impacts. And one of the things that 
I was hoping to talk to you about today is what impact your wealth of experience, 15 years, has had on your participation in sport. And in particular, when you started playing rugby, whether you ever actually had any expectations that safeguarding would come into it at all? No, it really wasn't something I was thinking about. As I say, I didn't even know women's rugby was a thing. So when I started playing, it was a case of turn up, go to the club. And then as you start playing, it's like, okay, well, are there spaces for the women? Is it separated? And, you know, do we have the same facilities as the men? I think I've been quite lucky that actually most clubs that I've been to have separate changing rooms, um, separate spaces for women, whether that's because actually I've come to the game a bit later than others, because I've definitely heard stories that that's not quite been the case. Mm. Previously, you know, lack of changing room spaces for women or girls or the, the boys and, you know, the senior men get the priority, whereas actually clubs that I've been at they prioritise the women as well. So I think I've been quite lucky with that. I mean, I'm going to be honest now, I haven't played rugby for 18, 19 years, I don't think. Well, certainly not, you know, in any sort of team. At university, playing rugby, nobody ever says to you, you're joining the rugby team, these are our safeguarding arrangements. Does anybody do that now? No. So... We have a safeguarding lead at the club and it's advertised on the website and internally. Mm. We have a specific app for our club. So again, all key contacts are on there so you know who to contact. We don't necessarily put lots of information out, but what I do and what previous heads of the women and girls have done is we have a club-wide committee but within the women's section, we have a smaller committee. And each season, I sort of, the last couple of seasons at least, I've identified players who are our well-being leads or senior players so that the rest of the players have someone that they can go to. So it's not always just me. Um, and they've got a different voice that they can go to. And we re-emphasise that to players so that they do know that they can speak to somebody if they have an issue. And at the moment, what I'm just doing is just creating some content so just some flies and some posters to put up in the changing rooms just to confirm, you know, if you've got a concern, who is it that you would speak to? How would you go about contacting them and map out the process a little bit? So it makes it a little bit easier for people to understand that they can raise an issue if they have one. And in terms of girls rugby, I, my suspicion is that people are probably more aware of the concept of safeguarding in that respect. Is that fair to say? I think so, yeah. When it comes to the girls, I think everybody's much more alive about what they're doing. Quite often, the coaches are predominantly male because it's the, mm -hmm. the parents that come and, and do the coaching. So we ensure that they complete the courses. So the RFU have online safeguarding courses and various others. So we ensure that the coaches all do that in the seasons. And then, yeah, there's a wider management with the girls section as well, just to keep an eye on everything. And in terms of those conversations that take place in the club, is safeguarding something that people feel comfortable and confident talking about? Yeah, I think so. 
it's a standing item on the agenda every committee meeting. And I think if anybody had an issue, they wouldn't necessarily wait until the exec meetings to raise it. So I think we have good lines of communication with each other. So if there was an issue, it could be raised at any point and is taken really seriously by the club. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about, because I've been talking to people about this in the sports space, is the concept of safeguarding adults at risk and the concept of safeguarding adults when playing in sport. Because the two don't necessarily line up, do they? No. And sort of working in healthcare for the past, as I say, 15 years, I think, unfortunately, we see the worst of the worst Yeah, um, a lot of the time. So... I'm always like, oh my gosh, this is where it can go. And it's trying to balance that in a different setting and move myself away from, well, yep, this is what I work in day to day. But actually in the sports context, there are things that are similar that we need to keep an eye on, but it is a slightly different situation and it's trying to broach that without having the legal head on. Yeah. (laughs) And actually it's, as a player, as, as head of the women's section, how do we look at this? and support the situation. I think we've just generally seen a bigger development about safeguarding and and it being brought to the table. I think even within healthcare, it's something that wasn't quite as at the forefront as it has been over the last six, seven years, which Mm. is good to see that actually people feel comfortable to raise the issues where they've got the concerns and we've got the processes and the structures in place and Mm. we are seeing that being used. But I'm not sure within a sports context, we're necessarily at the same point yet. I think there's a lot of confusion sometimes, or not confusion, just lack of clarity about, well, what classes are safeguarding and Mm. is this, or is it just me overthinking something? Or like I said, who is it that you even go to and speak to? Because I don't know what I should be doing in this situation. Mm. So I think there's still a lot more work to be done within a sports environment. And I think that's probably any sport. Yeah, But I think we're seeing a lot more conversation about it, which I think is really encouraging. One of the themes that has started to come across for me, especially in safeguarding adults, and in particular female participants in sport, has been what sports clubs do if they become aware that one of their players is the victim of domestic abuse. And that's a really difficult issue but if perhaps somebody is you know only really able to access as a social outlet a sports club then it must be something that sports clubs become alive to because so many women are sadly the recipients of domestic abuse aren't they yeah and i think it's really difficult because again from a club's perspective what do we do what don't we do where are the boundaries for us Mm. but I think first and foremost it's creating a safe space for any individual yeah so ensuring that actually when they come to the club they're welcome and they feel welcomed and they're able to raise issues so we want to create an environment that is safe it's fun people can be themselves one of the things that I absolutely love about rugby having played sports all my life is Rugby is the most welcoming environment I've ever been in. Okay. So there is space for everyone. So it's 
how do we continue to put that out to ensure that actually if a player is having an issue, they feel that they can raise it. And that's not necessarily then for the club to have to do something or the safeguarding lead to be necessarily being proactive about it. But it's understanding that there are these issues that individual is dealing with it their own way, but we're there to offer support as and how we can in response to the disclosure that's essentially made. And can I just pick up on that about being a safe space? For the listener who is joining us today, they probably know one of my hobby horses that I'm going to put to you now is that it concerns me that sports rarely feature in care plans for adults to whom we're providing statutory services. So if we have somebody who, for whatever reason, is receiving care under the CARE Act or is receiving uh, continuing health care from the local ICB, one of the things that we see in care plans quite often is that the particular person will have a sports outlet, and that outlet is often going to the gym. Mm. Why are they always being sent to the gym? Why are they not going down the local rugby club? Why are they not going to the local football club? Why are they not involved in hockey, gymnastics and the rest of it? Come on, Molly, tell me. I don't have the answer. (laughs) Is it because, first and foremost, when we think about fitness or sports, the gym's the first instance? Maybe. It may well be, you know, if somebody's potentially not ever really been involved in sports or expressed an interest in a particular activity as a first port of call I actually think the gym's a good idea because you're still getting out you're interacting with people Mm. and it's from those conversations that you then go oh actually they're talking about this I quite like this you know when I first started going to the gym I went to a female only gym then I went to you know fitness first pure gym all of these things and then I went to a bodybuilding gym Mm. And I've moved along and through all of these different places, I've met different people and I've gone, oh, actually, yeah, you know, being at Fitness First led me to a bodybuilding gym and it's probably one of the best gym environments I've ever been in. It's the most welcoming and supportive gym environment. And for people that find gyms really scary, a bodybuilding gym is great because actually people are really encouraging, but it's a starting point. And I think a lot of the times the issue is, well, then what next? And if you've got carers and if you've got two to ones or three to ones in a gym, it's a little bit easier to not hide that fact, but it's not so prolific for an individual. Yeah. If you're going to play a team sport, actually, how is that managed? So I think because it's not ordinarily done, carers, providers, local authorities struggle to think about that a little bit more Mm. unless an individual is really expressing an interest that they want to play hockey or they want to play netball or rugby cricket go horse riding unless there's a real drive for that I think most people's starting point is the gym because it's like well okay let's at least get some physical activity in or go for a walk and let's see what that builds to because something is better than nothing And if somebody isn't expressing those interests, you wouldn't automatically think, let's go to a sports team. No, I get that. So again, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently are young men, young women who receive services through statutory bodies. And some of them, in terms of their social outlet, is literally, you know, their carers and going to events which are run specifically for people who have got 
similar issues to them, be it learning disabilities, be it autism, whatever. And I wonder whether or not there is an argument to say people, because of their educational background, have not necessarily been exposed to sport. Why don't we ask carers to take them to the taster session at the local rugby club or the local judo club? Yeah. But how you conceptualise that within a care plan, it's not really something for a care plan necessarily. It seems to me more perhaps a cultural thing. Absolutely. And I think it's linking back into the schools to understand what's available. I spent only, I think it was in May, I was at Kiel University, spent a day doing some rugby sessions. But that whole day, schools from all over Staffordshire came and it was like a Commonwealth sports day kind of idea. Mm-hmm. They played Quidditch, they played football, they had right. hockey, they had netball. You know, so actually it's about the schools, whatever school you're at, linking in with these wider companies and because they contact the schools and they say, well, actually, we want you to get involved in this. And that is happening more and more. And then what we're finding is, is that these companies that are then organising these events will contact local teams. So that's how I got involved because they contacted the club and asked us for some coaches for the day, Mm. went down, helped with that. So it's trying to engage with that and sort of almost going back to local authorities and saying, well, what's happening in the area? Where can, you know, this individual school be linked in with that? Because there's got to be something happening. But even outside of that, a lot of clubs, as you say, they do taster sessions. And even if they don't want to do the taster sessions, clubs will have events on. All clubs, no matter what they have, they will have some sort of fundraising, family day. You know, Bonfire Night is a great example of when clubs will have something on. You know, Christmas, summer, there's always something at your local club. So it's about identifying that. I think at times it can be hard for providers to potentially do that because they don't always know. But at the same point, if they are caring for an individual, I don't think that they can't have a look at what's out there. So I think it's just changing the mindset a little bit because we're so used to, as you say, care plan is A, B, C, X, Y, Z. It's pretty clear what a care plan should look like. Mm. But... As we said, we've had two years of lockdown, two years of of limited social interaction. So it's, well, how do we become a bit more creative about this? Mm. And where can we look? So I think it's just understanding what the local landscape is around you. And social media is a really big part of that nowadays. Yeah. You know, clubs will advertise on Instagram, social media, Facebook, Twitter. So it's actually not that hard to find things. So if, again, if you know an individual likes watching tennis or watching football, whatever it may be, you can see when the next game is going to be. Sure. And, you know, usual risk assessments would apply, etc. But that doesn't mean you can't look at those events and going down and testing the waters. I don't think either that just because somebody has one-to-one, two-to-one in the community, that it would necessarily exclude them from a team sport either. What frustrates me a little bit is that nobody's ever really asked me to advise on how it would work. Which no one's may- asked me either. Oh, well, exactly. And this is so, so, so the fact that you consider how long both you and I have been in this game, pardon the pun. It does seem relatively strange that neither of us have ever been asked, how would we get somebody to play at the local football club? How would we get someone to play at the local rugby club? And I just wonder if there's a sort of, not necessarily a structural issue, but whether there's an issue whereby 
people feel uncomfortable, or perhaps even providers would feel uncomfortable, because you would have to have a discussion with the club, potentially, wouldn't you? Yeah, potentially. But I suppose it's difficult. I mean, I've seen care plans where and goes to play badminton. Okay. So I do see it, but I suppose it's probably, it's very different sporting activities that I do see, in all fairness. I've definitely not seen football. I've definitely not seen rugby in the mix. And it's difficult, especially if you think about rugby. I think 100% it is doable, but also it is a full contact sport. Yeah. There's a risk of actually, as a provider, how do you manage that? Because you've got to body map an individual as well. And how do you say, well, this one's definitely from rugby or this is from this. And so there's all those wider considerations. And I think that is probably why we haven't had to deal with it so far, because it's a minefield that people may not want to approach it as yet. All right. Uh, So flip it away from the client group of younger men and younger women Mm. to older people. So I'm not suggesting that people who are in residential care settings necessarily should go out and play contact sport. But I do wonder, again, whether there's a place for adapted forms of games to form parts of care plans. So, for example, walking rugby. Yeah. So... I know clubs that do walking rugby, they've got wheelchair rugby. So again, a lot of bigger clubs and and premiership clubs have a foundation arm or, you know, like a charity arm to their clubs. So those things are happening. And again, it's about how are the clubs linking with the local authorities or or commissioners or the schools to put those opportunities out. And again, because it's club driven there's going to be more input in certain areas than there are in others. But there's definitely these things that happen because I've been to events and I've seen it. So I just think the issue is, is that it's probably just not consistent across the country. Okay. So there's a challenge to our listener. Molly and I are here. We're ready. We want to work with you to try and find a way. If you've got a service user who wants to participate in sport, I think it's fair to say that Molly and I are are ready and on the standby to try and help make that happen. But I'm I'm going to go one further, Molly. I'm going to really put you on the spot here with this one. I want to anchor young people who are transitioning from children's services to adult services in their communities. Mm -hmm. And I think that sport is a great way to give someone who's 16, 17, 18, going from children's services to adult services, potentially a trusted adult in their life who they wouldn't otherwise have. I agree. (laughs) So we have out there personal advisors up and down the country who are drafting pathway plans as we speak. Why can't those personal advisors have conversations with those care leavers about participation in sport? I don't think there's any reason why they can't. I think it's more, it's never quite been the forefront. Again, it's back to the whole care planning. Care planning is quite clear, you know, as a minimum, these are the the areas that we need to ensure are covered. So I don't think playing a sport is necessarily at the top of the list. That's not to say it shouldn't be, but I think it hasn't been at the top of the agenda. Like I said earlier with safeguarding, it's not a conversation that was, you know, really discussed a lot whereas that's really built over the last seven eight years and people are much more confident about talking about it and it's much more on people's radar I think we're now seeing that shift within sports just as a general sports is much more at the forefront in terms of 
women's sports and in sports for other areas and minorities and it's really building so that conversation is starting so it's about how you get involved in that and help keep the conversation going and as you say for a care lever well what do you like to do is it that actually you want to be watching more and if you really like watching the sport why not give it a go you don't know where it could lead you know it could be actually you just like playing it socially or you know you've given it a go it's not for you or it could be something you absolutely love and you really want to you know keep going at it and it will vary for everyone and I think maybe one of the issues is almost with some places to participate in a sport there's a cost so if an individual isn't really into it do you want to be using their money for them to go to a sport that they're not necessarily overly enjoyed about or actually is it look at other things go out for meals or you know go out to the cinema and utilize their funds in that way with them so it just crops up in so many ways that there's all these other considerations and it's how do you balance it and again just just moving back to the girls team if you had a child who was looked after and she said you know, I want to play some team sport, I want to make friends, would she be welcome in your girls' team? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I say, rugby's for everyone. doesn't matter what your background is, what you look like, body shape, whatever. There is a space for every individual on that pitch. So 100% players are always welcome. I think in particular what I love about rugby, and I always encourage younger people to do it, is it's great because it helps instill discipline, um skills working with each other you know unlike other sports this is 15 people on a pitch we're working with each other it's not individual so it's how do we all support each other so that for me the skills that you build within a rugby setting apply outside of it as well so it's a great environment to be in because it's all about actually I respect you you respect me we work together we play together it's about enjoyment it's about being safe because again you're making that tackle You've got to do it properly and you've got to do it safely, but you can really have fun when you make a tackle. So there's elements of structure and we need to keep with it, but actually there's lots of opportunities to have fun, work hard and make lifelong friends. So if you're perhaps a social worker who's listening or you're a commissioner or you work for a care provider and you've got a service user who may well be benefit from participating in sport and you you want to have that conversation with a club what types of conversations should they be having molly what should those care providers be asking what should those social workers be asking before that person gets involved i think it is actually just have a really open conversation with the club and say you know this is our individual not necessarily quite sure how it would work but this is what we would look to do whether it's come down and observe or us come down first, have a sit-down conversation. We'd really like to look at how we can work with each other and support each other and just put your cards on the table almost. You know, you can't hide the potential risks. Some clubs will be happy to have that conversation, engage in it and work through with you. Some clubs may say no, but at the same point, there are a lot of clubs around. So if one club says no, that doesn't mean, you know, that the door's closed as with anything else have a conversation with somebody else and I think just say how can we work together to try and do this and a lot of that is actually that's fine come down let's see the session staff will need to be there and for that individual it may be rather than 
they're straight into contact or they're straight into certain bits, we're going to work on skills. So it may be for that individual actually needs to be a shorter session. Yeah. So there'll be elements where they're playing with others, but then we take them out for skill zones. Then they're still getting that specific attention on them, which they may need. Or actually it's, yeah, go in, hour and a half training session. They're absolutely fine integrating with everybody else. It will just depend on what that individual's needs are. And so it's just working through it. As we say, everyone is an individual. So it's what are their needs and how best can we meet them and how can everybody work together to try and meet those needs and then my final question for those people today who are listening in respect of perhaps they're from sporting clubs i know there are people who listen in particular to the podcast in respect of safeguarding in sport what is the one thing that we can get better in sports safeguarding i think it's just not be afraid to have the conversations some clubs will be better at this than others. Some clubs will have amazing setups and are really on it. And that may well be because they've had incidents and they've had to learn. Other clubs, because it's they've kind of got someone because the RFU says you have to have an allocated safeguarding need, but actually they've never had to deal with it. But whether you've dealt with it or not, talk to other clubs. Like, what do they have set up? Learn from each other. Every club has, you know, a county-wide club that we can then go to. So, you know, we've got Staffordshire. Speak to the the leads there and get information because you don't have to start from scratch. Clubs are willing to share information to talk to each other and support each other in this because safeguarding is never going to go away. So we need to make sure that we understand it so that if there ever is an issue... It's not panic and, you know, deer in headlights, but there is a process. We know what to do. And because ultimately, if somebody's reporting it to you, you need to be calm to assure that individual and support that individual. You can be panicking inside. It's absolutely fine. But externally, (laughs) you know, okay, get that information, go through it with them, reassure them and work from there to have the conversations. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about us, visit 39essex.com. If you want to work with Molly, then you can email her, molly.sangara at mills-reeve.com. If you want to connect on socials, then you can add Molly at Molly M and R. You can add me at Council Tweets. You can add the podcast at safe underscore cast. And you can connect with the public law team at 39 Public Law. Join us again next time for Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast available where you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com.